Thanks to our friends at The Hollywood Show for their help with this episode of Talking About Cars with Randy Cardoon. See more at HollywoodShow.com. Hey, everybody, and welcome to a new edition of the award-winning Talking About Cars, where it's all about everybody has a car story, from celebrities to car personalities. I'm Randy Cardoon. Now, this week, we talk with the editor of a magazine that if you are a car guy, you've no doubt read and likely subscribed to. The magazine is called Collectible Automobile. The editor is John Beale. But first, an actor who made her first movie role count... Nikki Blonsky. You remember her. She played Tracy Turnblad in the 2007 movie version of Hairspray. Now, I know what you're saying. Come on, Randy. I didn't know Tracy Turnblad was a car person. Well, like I've always said, everybody has a car story. And when I caught up with Nikki at the Hollywood Autograph Show near the L.A. airport, she related the story of her first rather large car. My first car was a 1992 white Chevy two-door Blazer. And I remember, I'm super short, I'm only 4'10", so I'd have to get like a running start to get in it. And then I had to sit on a cushion to see over the steering wheel. Now, why that vehicle? Uh, was it your idea or was it a hand-me-down or what? It was, what had happened was I won a talent competition over the summer. I won a thousand bucks. There was a car guy that my dad knew. He said, do you have anything for a thousand bucks? My kid a senior she needs a car and that's how I got the 92 Chevy Blazer it wasn't about what I liked or whatever it was I had the money and that's how much it was and that was it and even if you needed a ladder to get into it that's what you got exactly and what was the first car did you buy a car after hairspray or, or did you I did I bought um, my mother a Nissan Pathfinder and I bought um, my father a Toyota RAV4. Very practical car. Yeah, and you gave it to your parents. Yeah, I mean, if it was up to me, I mean, I'm a huge, I love Mustangs, I love Cadillacs, I I just love old cars. So if it was up to me, it, it, it wouldn't have been, you know, one of those like regular, if it was up to me, it'd probably be a little, a little more cooler than that but See, but you were still driving the blazer then during uh, hairspray times i was and then i um i when i was getting ready to start filming another film um my best friend at the time she actually bought it from me and then she called me back about two months later and she said i gotta get rid of this car because everybody thinks i'm you she goes and people keep stopping me and it's driving me nuts how did people find out what you were, what your personal car was? Well, as a sweet gesture, my dad bought me, you know, the tire cover on the back. He bought me a Tweety Bird one. So when anybody saw Tweety Bird passing, they knew it was me. And she left the cover on, so everybody thought it was me. You know, I would think that she probably got a whole chunk of change for that by saying, hey, this used to be Nikki Blonsky's car. I mean, I don't know, that or it's either in a salvation yard somewhere, yeah. dying a slow death. Yeah, that's probably <laughs> true. That's probably true, yeah, I'd say so. So we were talking a little bit about when you were on the show, they had so many cool cars, because technically, if for those who never saw the movie, it was around 1962. In yeah. fact, my daughter and I would watch the movie, and we'd find the same car showing up all over the place in various forms, but 
that's movie magic for you. Um, but but it's just the fact that they had so many cool cars. It was amazing, and that was my favorite part about showing up every day when we were doing an exterior scene was I knew all the building faces would be remade to the 1960s, and then to see all the cars lined up and down the street from that era, and just see and beautiful colors that aren't really around anymore, light pinks and teals, and it just, I mean, such beautiful cars, and the owners were there, and they were just so proud to have their cars in the film, and and we were honored to have them. So it was just, it was a great experience and it started my love affair with old cars. What was one of the cars that uh, was in that movie that really, to this day, you still remember fondly or you remember is maybe the, the best car of the bunch? It, a 57 Chevy. It was just beautiful. What, what scene was that, do you remember? I don't, I think it was parked in one of the driveways. Like it wasn't like on the main road, but it was just, it was beautiful and I remember I'd walk by it every day. That and a Thunderbird. And I would walk past this like light blue Thunderbird and I'd be like, someday, someday I'll see you. <laughs> when I used to do television news and sports, we did a thing once, we were live from a car activity and they put me on top of the camera truck. There was no railing. They put me on top of the camera truck and a lot of people were coming by and every so often somebody would try to bump the truck or whatever to try and goof with you. So I'm here doing it and I finally said, oh, to heck with this. I'm going to get on my knees and do the shot on my knees. I was wearing white pants and it, well, let's just say those were the last days I wore those pants. But that, it's not about me, it's about you. And I'd say that, I say that because I remember in the movie you were dancing and doing your scene on top of a garbage truck. I, I've got to ask you, do you have an issue with height issues? Uh, what, what was that all about and what was that like? You know, um, I mean, I'm only 4'10", so that's a height issue, but that's a different one. Uh, you know, I was never really, like, petrified of heights. I'm a type of person where I'll say, well, let me try it, and if I like it, I'll keep doing it. If I don't, I'll stop. And I just remember, you know, the heights didn't phase me. They put me up there and I was just dancing and singing and I knew that I was safe. I knew they had, you know, somebody holding on to, you know, my harness and I was okay. Oh, you had a harness? Yeah, I had a oh, harness. I yeah. should have thought of that. Okay. <laughs> and actually my harness was drilled through a hole in top of the garbage can, in top of the garbage truck rather, and there was a man inside holding the rope. So the whole time we shot that scene, there was a man in the garbage truck. Holding, holding me you. Down. Holding me down. And they say Hollywood isn't glamorous. Right? Isn't glamorous hanging out with garbage trucks? Just so the star could sit there and be hanging on and not falling off a garbage truck. Exactly. <laughs> that makes complete sense to me. I just do what they tell me to do. How many takes did that take, do you think? I was on the garbage truck all day. It was an all-day affair of riding it and getting down. Yeah. And people wonder why we're in a union. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I don't know. I mean, being in a garbage truck, I mean, you know, hey, the gut, these are unions. Things, the sacrifices you make to make Hollywood what it is today. I think that's pretty cool. So... Um, 
I'm trying to think of some of the other scenes in there, but for the most part, I think those, oh, in the scene where... In, in a trunk in one of the scenes. Right. Oh, yes, that's right. You were in the back. You were in, that's right. You were in the trunk of a, and I'm trying to remember now, it was like a 59 Chevy or something like that. Were you really in a trunk or did they mock it up to make it look like it was a trunk? No, I was actually in the trunk. And it was so funny because my friends that were in the front seat, they didn't realize that I could hear them in the trunk. So they're having a conversation and I'm trying to participate in the conversation, but they don't hear me because I'm in the trunk. And I just, I was like, you know what? They can't hear me. Forget about it. <laughs> but, you know, I when I wanted attention, I'd have to be like, hey, you know, I got to go to the bathroom or hey, get me out of here. Uh, claustrophobia, not a part of your life? No, no. It's, you know, like I said, being four foot ten, I'm used to compact spaces. And, you know, so, you know, it was fine with me. Yeah, I did a lot of firsts on that movie. Garbage trucks and a lot of, yeah. Trunks? Trunks, yeah. Well, what were the other firsts, you think? Uh, oh, I had my first kiss on that movie. Yep. Seriously? Oh, yeah. Um, I had my first dog with me on that movie. So just a lot of first great experiences. and that first rocket ship ride? My first rocket ship ride, yes. Yeah. Now that I think about it, I did do a lot of stunt work. Yes, you, uh, you better talk to whoever your agent was back then and see if you can get some extra money coming. Really, though? Um, but, I mean, that's what... The set was just beautiful, and it was—it really transported everybody back to 1962, and it wouldn't have been possible without the cars. Do you ever go to car shows and look at cars and that kind of thing? And if so, do people still recognize you and all that? Yeah, I get recognized all the time. Um, I haven't done a car show. I have sang the national anthem for NASCAR, Sonoma 500. Um, that was amazing. And um, I got to meet and hang out with Michael Waltrip. And he came up to me and he was like, my daughter loves you. And I was like, oh my gosh, like one of the greatest race car drivers of all time. So That's got to be the line you get all the time. Not, you were great, you were, no, my daughter, my, you know. Yeah, that's usually, but it's great though because that just shows me that it really is a family film and it really is something no matter what generation it carries uh, I always ask people on our show uh, what are the top three cars you could get if money was no object if money was an object um, let's let's bring it up that way whether it's a classic car or not top three cars Nikki Blonsky has on her I want that car list BMW X5 that's on the hopefully someday we get there <laughs> make enough money um that's one that's like the family car you know take the kids if i had kids which i don't but you know what i mean family car. someday you'll have kids and you'll have a bmw x right and then i think you know I, i'm a giver i can't like I don't know, I can't not ask my mom or dad what they would want. Let them pick one. That's just me. But um, And then, of course, there'd have to be a Mustang in there. Are we talking classic Mustang, a newer Mustang, one of each? Classic. That's it. She's a Mustang girl. So what are you doing now? 
I just finished a film that just came out. It's called The Last Movie Star with Burt Reynolds. Speaking of car guys, right? Um, Burt Reynolds and Chevy Chase. And that is out. It's called The Last Movie Star. And I have a film coming out on Halloween called Ghosts in the Graveyard. And I have a film coming out with Ziggy Marley. So I'm, I'm keeping busy. Nikki Blonsky is doing a horror movie? Yes, I did it. And it was so much fun. I figured... What is the only way to get over my fear of horror movies? Well, let me be in one and and show myself it's all fake and, you know. Were you one of those in the audience sitting there going, don't open that door? No, I, I'm like, you know, no, I'm... I'm very, they don't, you can't, you don't know until the end if I'm good or bad. So you all have to see, but uh, there's definitely, definitely a lot of fun stuff going on in that movie. And You can't tell me whether or not you get to keep all your body parts? I do. I do. And, yep, every limb, every organ is intact. Actress Nikki Blonsky, who did have all of her body parts attached when we had our talk, really, I'm, I'm here to tell you. Now, it's a magazine you can find at your nearest bookstore or newspaper stand. Collectible Automobile has been around since 1984. Not only does it show great quality pictures of cars that you really don't see much anymore, but it includes some really great car stories as well. John Beale is the editor of CA, as it's commonly known as in shorthand. So when did John's car story, his curiosity about cars, when did his story begin? I suppose I was always uh, somewhat... uh interested in them growing up. My dad would typically trade things every few years, and there was always a, you know, a new car of one type or another. Uh, you know, I built some model cars and things like that, but I seem to recall uh, right around about 1970 or so, about 12, going on 13 years old, I think, um, kind of developing a, a sort of a an interest, a nostalgia, I guess. The things that kind of probably I would have been missing out as a toddler that would have been the cars that people had. So I was kind of interested in cars of the late 50s, early, you know, first few years of the 60s kind of thing, and began to start to, to research them, try to put together who made what, when, what did they make. And that was probably the, the, the start of it, probably around, you know, that, that just adolescence. What do you remember that your dad used to drive around in? What kind of cars do you remember? Well, a- the first car that I remember... Uh, that I remember, though, the car they had when I was, my parents uh, had when I was born was a 1953 Mercury, I am told. first car I remember, though, and the one that has stuck with me and is like sort of a, the, the sentimental favorite, is a 1958 Chevrolet Biscayne two-door sedan that we had. Really? Why? Don't turquoise, yes. Why did why did your dad get a Biscayne? I mean, obviously, for those who didn't know, that was pretty much the low end of the trim of that That particular year, year it was the second from the bottom. Uh, the Delray was the was even that was the cheaper model right here. That was the one that was kind of the mainstream. That was the the, the that sort of successor to the old the, the two tens of a few years earlier, and that was a very you know, popular thing. The way I can remember him telling me, I think it was a it was sort of like a late season closeout. I think he. Uh, <laughs> He, he got a he got a gander at the uh, he got a gander at the fifty nines and I don't think he liked the big fins so he bought a he bought a car out of stock uh, bought this so I'm, I'm told it was a it was a late in the model year uh, purchase so it was a late fifty eight Chevy mm-hmm. Biscayne which at mm-hmm. the time was I guess a lot of us grew up in the Impala era that was mm-hmm. the Bel Air level basically because Bel Air yeah. at the time was I guess the number one trim level the Impala had just come out that year and was. It was actually technically that first year it was part of the Bel Air series, and it was only just a two-door hardtop and a convertible, so they had just 
that nameplate was just getting established. And for those of you who try to picture a 58 Impala, if you will, just, uh, and I'll take you back to another old movie, American Graffiti. Yes. That was yeah. the hero car that Ron Howard Ron and Howard. Cindy Williams drove around in. Right, right, mm-hmm. right. Well, this was a little bit, a little bit less flashy, a little bit taller, a little bit, uh, a little stubbier. <laughs> um, when you're that small, you know, Four or five years old, you know, the thing just seems like it just, just like it's, it's like magic. You know, you can get around in this in, in these things, and so they they seem very important. Oh, absolutely! And of course, as we grow older, uh, you know, a lot of people have a tendency to, especially nowadays. And, and correct me if I'm wrong from your observation, because you deal with the magazine and you deal with seeing cars and what people are collecting. Uh, is it me, or do a lot of people out there not only collect the typical cars, the Camaros, the Mustangs, and the Challengers, and all that, but do they also collect cars that are close to them, kind of like their high school car? Absolutely. Yeah, that's that's a uh, yeah that that's always a, a huge touchstone. Uh, yeah, that that uh, that first car uh, kind of thing. That's a, that always means an awful lot to people and. The years go by, and then they miss it, and they want to go back and get something sort of like that again. I'm actually guilty of that, so you've encountered another one. Yeah. Okay, what do you have? <laughs> I have a uh, 64 Dodge Polaro. Uh-huh. I have the better version, though, which now is I have the two-door hardtop. Mm-hmm. But back in the day, I had a 64 Polaro four-door I want to say almost like a police sedan, but it, they, they didn't use those for that here. They use 64 Plymouths out here in uh, Southern California. Now, what was your first car, your high school car, and do you have a copy? Do you have one of those? No, I actually don't. I didn't I didn't own one. I didn't actually didn't own one until I was out of college. Uh, I drove, you know, the family car. Uh, uh my dad moved on after a couple of uh, after the '58. There were a couple of uh, Ford Fairlanes, and then he kind of got into for a, he had a couple of uh, Buick Skylarks, '68 uh, and '72, and a couple of nice you know pretty two-door hardtops. That '72 was the one I started kind of like soloing in. And it was the first one I was able to kind of use. And uh, uh, but then after after uh, college, after I kind of got out and got my after I got my first job, I uh, I. I wanted a convertible in the worst way, and that's almost kind of what I got. I got a slightly rusty. Uh, <laughs> and I, I, I like the way you said that. <laughs> a 1973 Oldsmobile Delta 88 Royale. It was a monster. We, we called oh it the Blue Whale. Yeah, I had a 350 V8. Those were huge. They were huge. I always liked uh, traditional American full-sized cars. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And this, and I got this thing. This was at about 1979, and I got it like just in time for the second gas crisis. So, oh yeah, oh yeah, <laughs> so, absolutely. Yeah, that was uh, poor timing on my part. But well, uh, yeah, exactly. No. But I had my convertible, and I just I thought I was king of the world. By the way, while I was uh, preparing, I, I just happened to have uh, something from a consumer guide. There's a blog with consumerguide.com, which, if right. I'm not mistaken, is connected to Collectible Auto. Correct? Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. The the, the uh, that's also part of our our, our uh, parent company. Also operates the uh, Consumer Guide Automotive uh, website, and and part of that is the the uh, Daily Drive blog. Yeah, I participate in that. Uh, I, you know, we have a series of test cars, new vehicles, and uh, so I'm in the test car uh, program and, and uh, for that. Okay, so I'm on the consumerguide.com blog, mm-hmm. and this particular one was dealing in cars that you could get the best gas mileage in in 1973. Mm-hmm. 
Conversely, I mean, there's your you, there are the cars that you would always expect to see there, maybe of the era. But the cars that you don't expect, for example, are the cars that got the worst gas mileage mm-hmm. in 1973, led by the Lincoln Continental mm-hmm. with seven miles per gallon. Oh, those were the days, weren't they? Seven. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, Cadillac, seven and a half miles per gallon. Eldorado mm-hmm. had eight. Mm-hmm. Ford LTD an 8.5. Pontiac Grand Prix, eight and a half. What else? Uh, Tornado, mm-hmm. uh, pretty much in the last years of uh, its life because they lost interest, 8.5. Chevy Caprice, 9.0. Imperial LeBaron from Chrysler. So, I mean, that's something I don't think a lot of us who grew up in that era remembered is, yeah, okay, economy cars were these small-looking things, but we never thought much about what you got gas mileage for those big yachts that no, our right, parents used to drive. Right, right, yeah, right up until that, uh, right up until the the first gas crisis there in the fall of 1973, uh, yeah, you know, people didn't seem to worry about it too much, although I, 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 I'm interested to look back at some of the vintage uh, magazines from the from the 50s uh, and the 60s and, and uh, look at the letters to the editor. There is this sort of um, easy narrative that people didn't care, you know, what gas costs. It cost, you know, it cost a quarter a gallon, and, and so, you know, nobody really cared. But you take a look, and there's an awful lot of hand-wringing on, on the parts of uh, the readers to these magazines. Going, Why doesn't my car get better gas mileage? And I can't believe how little gas mileage this thing gets. And I think I might look at one of those little imports that's coming over now the image that it was absolutely no one cared until the the first gas crisis is there, there's some evidence to suggest that that's not necessarily solidly the case that there actually was some concern on the hand on the parts of consumers that of what they were getting you know, for some of those those large cars that we now revere as collector cars. And for those of you who also wanted on the other side, what were the cars in 1973, according to ConsumerGuide.com, that actually got great mileage? And I don't remember that being a big deal or going wow, but mm-hmm. for example, a Fiat 128 in 1973 got 37 and a half miles per gallon, which nowadays isn't would bad. Would be impressive today. Yeah, well, especially because it's a gas vehicle. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. I drove around in a Honda Insight for a while and could get, well, my daughter drove it and she'd go the speed limit and get 54 miles to a gallon. But that's all based on the uh, blended technology, the hybrid scenario. Mm-hmm. So there mm-hmm. were cars out there, Datsun 1200, a Toyota Corolla back in the day, another Fiat. So, I mean, these are cars, Datsun 510, that would get over 30 miles a gallon back in 1973. Anyway, I'm, I'm kind of tangenting here. Uh, but let's get to the magazine. Were you planning on being involved as a journalist or a uh, editor from the beginning? Or what did John Beale want to be when he grew up, and how did he end up with Collectible Auto? I was Automobile. A, uh, I was a. Um, uh, I, I was in journalism. I had a. Uh, I was a. Uh, that that first job I'm talking about that I, when I bought the uh, uh, when I bought the Oldsmobile, I uh, <laughs> I was working for what was charitably known as a newspaper. And I was the uh, sports editor uh, for it. was a community newspaper. came out three times a week in the south suburbs of Chicago. Moved on to another paper or two, but I still stayed in the area. But then the magazine came out in 1980, early, 89, early 1984. We're going on 35 years uh, very soon here. And um, I heard the, uh, the publisher, uh, Frank Piler, on, uh, on a local radio program talking about this magazine that he was about to be bringing out. Kind of made a mental note. And 
some months later, I finally saw this interesting magazine. Started flipping through it, and it had these. It, you were talking about my '58 Chevy fascination. Mm-hmm. There was an article on the uh, on how the first Impalas were made, with a bunch of styling development photos from you know from inside the styling studio. And I just I thought, wow, this is this has got to be that magazine that that guy was talking about on the radio, and this is fantastic. <laughs> so I started out you know, buying it here and there. And then I was just right about the time I got, this is about the time I got married as well. My new bride said, uh, well, you get that thing more often. You pick it up on the stands more often than you don't. I think we ought to subscribe to that. So a good 10 years went by. I was looking for a career change and I sort of solicited, I said, listen, I'd like to get an interview, you know, just a a courtesy interview with you if I could, just at least, you know, let you know that I'm interested in this particular field. But I was still coming off of, you know, off of newspapering and and nothing to do specifically with cars. Eventually there was a, a, uh, on the consumer guide on the new car thing, there there was a position that opened up. I got in there, I got that job, did that for almost a year and a half, and the the guy who was the editor of Collectible Automobile, a guy named Dwayne Mackey, unexpectedly passed away in June of 1994. Mm-hmm. Almost immediately, they offered me the magazine if I wanted it, because they knew my that was my, you know the publisher knew that was my interest in my primary interest in coming here in the first place. So that's kind of what happened. It was in the middle of 95, June of 95. That's a lesson right there for those people looking for work or they want a certain situation. If that job isn't opening, but something else opens up, some people will just jump for that because then you could make a theoretical lateral move, right? I had gotten back in touch after I hadn't heard from him, uh, you know, anybody here in a few months. And, um, and they said, well, you know, we do we do have this other thing uh, open on our, uh, you know, but it's not our new car. It has to do with our new. I said, well, I'd like to be considered for it if, you know, and I said, okay, fine. And I got that job, and and that put me in, but yeah, put me in the building, and um, you know, and that's that's kind of what happened. But uh, I loved the magazine. It was my favorite magazine from the time that I discovered it, and uh, it, it just stayed that way. And I I almost can't believe it myself that how it turned out that I that I wound up editing it. John Beale of Collectible Automobile Magazine, and you really just hit on one of the reasons I love your magazine is because they do all these photos from the design facet of it, and they'll show you what the car could have looked like or might have looked like before it eventually was basically designed the way we know any car is designed today. And and it's, some of it is just kind of fascinating stuff. Oh, it's wonderful stuff. It's, it's, it's amazing sometimes the the huge leap that that they make from you know from the from the first sketches and the first small scale uh, three eight scale clays you know sort of desktop size clays to what happens along the way uh, to to get to the, to a complete project before somebody finally says that's it that's the design lock it down uh, yeah it, it's incredible stuff and and you know some of the manufacturers. Uh, to varying degrees, you know, really um, document the process, you know, thoroughly, or at least they did in those days. And uh, and so there's, you know, if you can find the the source of that uh, stuff, it's 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 a wonderful peek into the thinking of the designers and the marketing people and you know and the manufacturer. And one of the things, I, in fact, I was looking at one of your, well, I, I get it actually in the mail, so I subscribe, but there was an issue, and I don't remember exactly which one, I think it was toward the end of last year, but it talked about the design of how the 62 Plymouth came to be, and how they shrunk the cars, and how, mm-hmm. uh, after the 61s, and how s- at one point 
they were kind of experimenting with all the lights on one side, like three or four lights on one side and one light on the other side. It looked really weird, but they were actually kicking that around as a futuristic look. That was, uh, yeah, uh, Virgil Exner, who was the uh, the styling vice president at uh, Chrysler, sort of hit on that look. There were a couple of show cars that they had done with this sort of asymmetrical theme, this sort of like, like uh, you know, orienting the car in line with the driver rather than, you know, than, than a mirror image, you know, a half and half that, that we usually expect. Uh, and uh, uh, he played with this idea as a potential theme for the for the 19... 19- 62 Plymouths. It got pretty far. I mean, there are a number of, of uh, design studies that, you know, you can see uh, clay models and fiberglass models that are very close to, you know, the, you, you would, they would have characteristics that you clearly recognize as, as what you now know to be the 1962 Plymouth, mm-hmm. but with this offset, uh, offset to the left, um, you know, kind of bias, you know, and, and this was a, an idea that, that he drove. This is, you know, as a vice president, he certainly had a lot of clout, and he was basically setting the, you know, the design direction and, and wanted to really explore this. And he drove a 62 Plymouth, huh? I, I don't know. I'm not quite sure <laughs> what he had, but uh, it might have been, yeah, maybe he was an Imperial guy. I don't know. Harley but, uh, Earl's driving all these other cars, driving around in yeah. General Motors style and yeah. finery, and he drove a 62 Plymouth. Not that there's anything wrong with a 62 Plymouth. But, no, 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 no. But it's, you know, let's talk a little bit about the magazine. So you joined the magazine, and if you've never seen the magazine before, you really have to check it out because it's the ultimate coffee table book, really, because you have these hot high-gloss pictures. There's practically little advertising except for maybe something that you guys right. have for our, your own magazine. Our in-house, it's in-house, everything is, yeah, there's no retail or classified advertising. How do you make money on this? Uh, well, <laughs> How do you afford to put this together? We, we keep the overhead low, uh, <laughs> and, uh, you know, and, and, you know, we just have our sharp pencils. We have some, you know, some, some uh, you know, some smart manufacturing people who've, you know, forged, you know, good relationships. And uh, so we've got our, uh, you know, uh, we can manufacture it uh, uh, cheaply enough to, to make uh, to make something at it. So, yeah, we have an incredibly loyal, uh, dedicated uh, subscription base. Uh, there's a lot of people that they, they love to, to say, hey, I've been a subscriber since issue one, or, you know, I've been in the second year, or, you know, I've been reading it forever. There's a lot of guys that are still out there. And, and it's one of those magazines where you actually care what past magazines you don't have because the pictures are so great and the stories are so great. I mean, you know, somebody comes to me and says, hey, do you want a Sports Illustrated from 1964? Yeah, okay, I guess. I mean, but but this magazine is something, you know, just because of the visuals and all that and some of the stories they tell, it's something you definitely want to check out. Uh, people, yeah, aside from telling me that they've been with it for a long time, they're also telling me they're also very proud of the fact I've kept everything. Yeah, they've got full sets of the uh, you know, of the magazine from 1984 on, yeah. and uh, so that's you know that that's really that's really pretty cool. You know, when you hear that from people that they they really like what you're doing and and they uh, you know and they want to hold on to it. They find it a good you know a useful reference and and um, uh, so that's that, you know that's that's really you know incredibly flattering. They used to say that about Playboy. Now they say it about collectible automobiles. <laughs> I just want to say, you know, hey, I got the whole thing from Playboy since night. Nope, now it's collectible automobile. And, and again, I'm guilty of that, too. It's, uh, you know, it's on a shelf in my garage, and the wife is going, are you going to keep those forever? No, yeah, absolutely. They're great. And I'll go in and check them out once in a blue moon. So what's, what's also fun about it is you have – 
uh, segments in it, which I find kind of fun because not only does it deal with, again, a lot of different car ranges. You're talking about from the 30s to the 60s and 70s and even Mm -hmm. 80s. And then you have something called uh, cheap wheels and future collectibles. Future Mm -hmm. collectibles being basically cars that are around nowadays. Someday they, they kind of prognosticate that these cars may very well be the collectible cars of the next few years. Yeah, that's uh, those are, those have been uh, those two departments have been around since the beginning of the magazine. Um, uh, that that predates me, uh, so they uh, yeah I can't take any credit for that. They uh, that the uh, uh, Frank and and uh, Chris Poole, who was the original editor, uh, they put that together and and you know, inserted that department. And uh, it, it it you know it, it's kind of fun. Uh, you know, the, the cheap wheels is predicated on the idea that uh, there's things out there that may be of relatively recent vintage, and sometimes even a little bit older, but if you can still get your hands on them, that uh, maybe haven't appreciated, maybe haven't become big-ticket collectibles, but there's something, some curiosity about them that might make them fun to have if you could find one in, in you know, in usable shape, not necessarily something you have to restore, but if you could find one that's that's running... Uh, it might be a fun car to have for a while. And um, I, I went out and grabbed a, a copy of one of my editions as I ran out. I didn't really look at the date, and it turns out to be December 2017. So, mm-hmm. for example, the future collectible in this edition is the 2017-18 Camaro ZL1, which is pretty mm-hmm. much a slam dunk. Mm-hmm. I think that's obviously going to be some sort of collectible. But cheap mm-hmm. wheels, it goes back to the 1988 Mazda 626 Turbo AWS mm-hmm. all-wheel yeah, the yeah, for, rear wheel steering. Right. And, uh, yeah. And, rear uh, wheel steering. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A Mazda six two six had rear wheel steering. Yeah, yeah, they had all wheel steering. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. For what was it a year or two? Uh, you know, it was a it was a briefly done thing. That's the novelty. You know, that particular car has this. It's not going to be a uh, giant blue chip collectible, but it it does have this talking point. And it looks like a lot of other kind of mid-sized economy cars of the time, but it's got this talking point. And they'll never rebuild it on Wheeler Dealers. No, they probably... (laughs) (laughs) Somehow they'll look right past that. Yeah. And then it's even interesting because they stretch it, and you can obviously tell I've seen the magazine before, but you do collectible literature, which is interesting, because you do all sorts of uh, old magazine ads and all that. Right, and it, 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 we correlate uh, that and the collectible scale automobile departments um, right. to uh, to the topics that are covered in the magazine, and that give me that particular issue, in any given issue. We've got a literature columnist, and uh, he, uh, um, who's also a dealer, and he's got uh, he's got a uh, an extensive collect naturally an extensive collection of, of uh, things, and so he's able to you know to to kind of comment on on what. Uh, uh, you know what, what was published to, to support the kind of things that were published to support uh, sales, uh, catalogs, brochures, flyers, ads. Uh, he's even he, he knows you know a lot of times in cases of the older stuff that's got illustrations rather than photographs. He you know he's he knows who the the illustrators were. Um, oh wow! Know, so he'll point that yeah. And you've interviewed some of them, if I'm not mistaken. Back in about 2004, we did a great piece with Art Fitzpatrick who did those wonderful Pontiac ads in the 1960s uh, that were very evocative that, uh, I, I, as a kid, it's like, I want to go out and buy a Pontiac tomorrow. Because uh, they, yeah. they look so wide. Yeah, I don't have a driver's license, but I, I, want, <laughs> I want to go out and buy a, I need a Pontiac Catalina tomorrow. Uh, <laughs> because they were, yeah, they were, the, the ads were just very, 
very evocative, very sophisticated. We did a really good interview with with uh, with Art Fitzpatrick uh, some years ago. We've had some of the other illustrators uh, too, who uh, over the years were uh, uh, involved in advertising. Ross Cousins, a guy named Eric Valu, and that's another thing that we do is you know we interview, we run interviews with. Uh, or at least sometimes retrospectives. Obviously, sometimes we want to profile someone who's deceased, but uh, but when we can, we, we uh, you know interview various uh, designers, uh, executives, engineers, uh, people in racing. Um, so uh, yeah, we've you know we run a, a thing called pro- personality profile that uh, uh, we let people you know kind of talk about their careers in their own words. One other thought on on the whole uh, toy vehicles and the and the models and all that mm-hmm. other stuff that you talk about, and even to the point where if they show Hot Wheels or or Dinky mm-hmm. toys or Tootsie toys or Matchbox or something like that, that you know it's noted in there. And sometimes you even will say what they are were worth nowadays and and mm-hmm. that kind of thing. But I gotta I gotta ask you this, and this isn't necessarily something that is in your magazine, but let let's be honest, Hot Wheels is in the Toy Hall of Fame. Mm-hmm. Is Matchbox getting hosed for not being in the Toy Hall of Fame yet? <laughs> Come on! Honestly, I couldn't. <laughs> Come on! I could. I loved them as a kid. Of course, I had those before there were Hot Wheels uh, by a few years. Right. In my my way of thinking, if Hot Wheels are there, Matchbox ought to be there. Not necessarily. I know that that the, the Hot Wheels had a, had a fantastic just grip on the you know on the the youthful imagination, and now not not so youthful. Does I know there's a lot of adults that collect the heck out of them right but boy the matchbox uh, toys you know from the from the 60s and earlier were were really nicely so nicely done and so, had such fantastic variety were so international in scope it would be a shame to see them uh, you know be ignored uh, you know in the kind of overshadowed by their, their big spotlight that, that all right uh, good uh, hot wheels agree to agree well did you yeah. have one of those hot wheels tracks when you were a kid Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah my brothers so, and I wild the hours away with those. So you probably did what we did as kids, is we would sit there and take the Matchbox and take the Hot Wheels and race them against each other. And obviously the Hot Wheels would win because mm-hmm. they're yeah, built basically wheels. to do that. Right. Yeah. The only Matchbox car that even came close was that Jeep. Um, was that kind of like Jeep, kind of looked like a military Jeep, except I think it was tan and had, oh, larger wheels. And for some reason that, was able to keep up, but the rest of the Matchbox cars, forget it. They didn't. No, 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 no. Yeah, my uh, I think my uh, my Army half track with the uh, with the rubber tracks, I think would have would have absolutely uh, not made it. No, at all. no, no. And nowadays they break the tracks break, and then you're completely stuck. So right. what are you what are you going to do with that? <laughs> By the way, do? do you have any of those anymore? Do you still uh, have them? I thought I did. I'm a I I have a very bad suspicion that some of my that the ones that I had might have gotten tossed out what? from my parents house oh okay i have a suspicion i i, I would so they would have done it voluntarily i hope i find them again someday see i, I hope they're still around but. yeah no i completely get it they're still around and i just, and so many of us are in the car collectible mode and, and love cars really had those as a kid and a lot of people just kept them for whatever reason i still have i've got a lot i've got a, a huge collection of plastic kits some going back to the earliest things that i've ever done but uh um, what was your favorite model car kit? Uh, well, obviously, that, I like that that '58 Impala kit that uh, oh, right. that AMT did. That was so, you know so detailed, uh, and because of the subject matter, I like the the '55 that they the, that uh, Ravel did. That was uh, you could 
you know, you could hot rod a little bit, but uh, it looked great as a, as a stock vehicle, too. Fun stuff now is these guys, these aftermarket guys who've done things in resin who make things that, you know, weren't made by the major manufacturers back in the day. Right. That, that are, you know, that, that they're filling in a lot of, a lot of gaps with, uh, with that. Picked up a few of those and built a few of those. <laughs> All right. So, John, uh, tell me, what car that you've had in your life do you wish you could get back? If, you, if there was any car you had that, man, that would be great to have that again, what car would that be? The first new car that I ever owned was a 1987 uh, Monte Carlo Supersport. I liked that car an awful lot, but I wanted one for several years. I was kind of, you know, uh, I can remember driving around and, and you know, we'd be, my wife and I'd be going down the street and I'd keep going, there's our new, there's our new car, there's our new car, right, right time I see one, mm-hmm. there goes our next new car. Mine, I got mine uh, in black because I very much admired also the uh, Buick uh, Grand Nationals at the same time, which only came in, in black. They were based off the same body platform and, you know, body and chassis. So I kind of sort of in honor of that, I wanted a, I wanted a black notchback SS. Uh, so I always liked that car. I would, that would be, I think that'd be kind of a, uh, you know, a neat thing to have again. Um, but, uh, it, this time without the engine problems, I think that I had, but, uh, <laughs> yeah. that, of course we always have something like that. You know, it's funny. People will talk about a, a car. I've seen this in you know, letters to the editor that I've gotten where, you know, you run into that phenomenon where people will say, Oh, I wish I had this car that I, uh, let me tell you what happened. And they did it. You know, it's just like, Oh man, I was on this. I was on a, a prom, and and, and then, you know, the carburetor linkage stuck, and, and I had this, and then just like, and the thing left me stranded one night here, and it was just like, anyway, great car, wish I had it back. <laughs> They'll tell you thirteen <laughs> things that went wrong with it, and a great car, wish I had it back. I missed that car. Too many things are going good in their life right now. They want yeah, a little, uh, yeah, they want a little little chaos. drama, yeah. yeah. Yeah, okay. So talk a little bit about cars currently in your garage. Currently in my garage, unless my wife drove it out <laughs> right now, it's our our. 19, or 2012 uh, Jetta. I, unfortunately, I don't have the, the, the time or the space for a collector car. But being in the job I've got, it's almost like they're all my collector cars. So, you know, you, you just spend time with the uh, boning up on, on, on the cars that we're covering and reporting on. Uh, the occasional things that I get out to see, it's its a pretty full plate of, of experience with, with the cars out there. So I do, like I said, I mentioned, I think uh, that I've, I'm involved in the our test car program here and, you know, for the consumer guide, uh, site. And, uh, so I've always got, you know, something interesting to drive, you know, uh, from there. So that's, that pretty much, that pretty much fills up the driveway. Top three cars on the John Beale. I'm going to get one of those someday, or I want to get one of those someday list. I think it would be fun to have that 58 Chevy. And it wouldn't have to necessarily be, you know, a top drawer one or an Impala. I, do like the 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 SSs, the Impala SSs from the '90s, an awful lot, and a 1960 Ford, either the either the Sunliner convertible or the Starliner hardtop, the big cantilevered roof, sure, glassy, lots of glass. Those '60 Fords are my those are my favorite Fords. Interesting that they were the only ones for Ford for a long stretch that didn't have circular taillights and mm-hmm. had a completely different design in a way. Yeah, maybe that's the thing about them. They're so unFord-like. You'll you look at it twice. I've always uh, I've always kind of liked those. I used to get a ride to kindergarten from from a lady who's I was a classmate of her son, and they had a 1960 Ford Ranch wagon. So I actually spent some time riding in those. And you see the the last Europe, I'm not mistaken, of the Edsel was 60. 
Yes. And yes. it was basically yeah, it was basically the same body except mm-hmm. they took all the tail lights and switched them like uh, ninety yeah, degrees, made them vertical, yeah. made them vertical, and then you knew they didn't fit. Uh-huh. <laughs> it was uh-huh. just like, well, uh, we got a few lights. Let's just put them somewhere and make them fit so it looks different. Yeah, it's got to be. It's got to be. Yeah, if one's horizontal, then this has got to be vertical. <laughs> uh, John, how do people get? A hold of the magazine or find the magazine online or you you do have a website we do have a website somewhat simple one but it's there we're at uh, www.collectibleautomobile.com and collectible is with an i not an a i know there's some people that you know there's some alternate spellings but uh, we, we spell it with an i or they can find us on a counter in some of the major uh, mag- magazine racks Bookstores national too. book change we've got on our website we do have a uh, store locator you know so you can try to determine where the closest retailer is that might be carrying it yeah. we're out six times a year you know every other month yeah go to the bookstore check it out Look at it for yourself, and then you're just going to want to automatically subscribe because it is worth the price of admission. If you're a car person and the pictures are cool, the stories are cool, and it's just a lot of fun to look at. Last thought is you do have – you'll do something where you take the cars of a certain year. Yes. Do you, did you ever have a favorite year? What was your favorite year of the cars? My personal one was 1957 because it mm-hmm. seemed all the cars were so wild designs but very cool designs. Obviously, mm-hmm. the 57 Chevy and the 57 Ford, which actually outsold the Chevy, but mm-hmm. you can't find hardly any of them anymore. What was your favorite year? I probably I, – I like uh, – I, sometimes it kind of radiates out. There was – since the, the – that 58 Chevy is my sort of like my you know core kind of like nugget car. Then what the competition was, what else was out there? So 58 kind of uh, I like those a lot. 61 is also another year that I that I uh, uh, that I like. Uh, I think there's some very interesting uh, designs and some interesting products, you know, from throughout the uh, you know from brand to brand to brand. Um, so I like those an awful lot. I really the those 61 GM. Especially the the bubble top hard tops, uh, you know, it, it, all of them I think are really great. I think the, the Pontiacs especially are really fantastic looking cars. Sixty five is another one that I like an awful lot. There's a lot of really interesting, fun stuff there. So, um, yeah, those would probably be among my favorites. The editor of Collectible with an I, Automobile, John Beal. Hey, remember to subscribe to our podcast on Radio.com, iTunes, and KNX1070.com, or wherever you usually get your podcasts. So that way you can be notified when a new Talking About Cars is uploaded and you won't miss a thing. And if you're on iTunes, rate us. Give us five stars. Why not? Go wild! And leave a comment about what you think of the podcast. Our website is TalkingAboutCars.net. And follow us on social media, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Until next time, I'm Randy Cardoon. Join me as we have some fun talking about cars. Thanks to our friends at The Hollywood Show for their help with this episode of Talking About Cars with Randy Cardoon. See more at HollywoodShow.com.